Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Christian Owens, the founder and CEO of Paddle, a payments infrastructure provider for SaaS companies. Christian started building websites when he was just 12 years old. He walked into his local high street stores and asked them if they wanted him to build a website. His first customer was an Indian restaurant. At 14 years old, inspired by Groupon, Christian persuaded a number of software vendors to participate in selling a discounted software bundle to their email lists and generated over a million dollars in gross sales. Today, Christian is running a company which employs nearly 400 people, is approaching $100 million in ARR, and has raised $300 million in VC funding. Paddle also recently acquired ProfitWell in a deal worth around $200 million. I originally interviewed Christian over three years ago when Paddle was doing around $10 million in ARR. In this episode, we recap some of the discussions from that earlier interview and talk about how Christian got started building his business as a teenager and eventually founded Paddle when he was just 18 years old. We talk about how he's grown Paddle over the last 10 years into a SaaS business that's close to hitting nine figures in annual revenue. And he shares the background on how the ProfitWell acquisition came about. We also chat about his entrepreneurial mindset and what he does when he has a new business idea. He shares some interesting insights that might inspire you the next time you come up with that great idea. So I hope you enjoy it. Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's been, uh, I think, three and a half years since we, we last talked. There's been a lot going on. Uh, in the world of Paddle, and uh, it seemed like a great time to invite you back and and catch up on what you've been up to. So thanks for uh, joining me, and it's great that this time we're actually recording in video. So I love that. Tell me, uh, for people who aren't familiar with Paddle, uh, what does the business do? Who's it for? And what's the main problem you're helping to solve? Yeah, so we are we build a product for other SaaS businesses, so other subscription software companies. Um, primarily to help them with sort of all of the back office elements of uh, of selling their products and running the business. So everything from core payments and how they take payments from people to recurring billing, invoicing, um, and more recently, um, how they run the business from a, a, a metrics, benchmarking, retention, um, and growth perspective as well. I mean, obviously, in the last interview, we we talked about how you had started building websites when you were 12 years old and then eventually how you ended up uh, starting Paddle and, and grew it to about 10 million ARR, which was back then. Um, I, I don't know if you talk disclose uh, revenue numbers these days, but uh, can you give us kind of like a ballpark in terms of the size of the business, how much money you've raised so far, number of team, etc.? So we're... 370, 375 people um, today. We've raised about $300 million. Um, and we don't disclose exact revenue, but we're approaching $100 million. That's nice growth in the last three and a half years. Yeah, it's been, a, it's, it's been, a, it's been, it's been an interesting time. <laughs> let's, let's go back to uh, when you were 12. Uh, that's when, when we last talked, I remember you had said that's when you started to learn how to build websites and then you decided you were going to go and walk into local businesses and ask them if they wanted a website. 
And uh, I, I remember you telling me that, you know, some of them just laughed at you and didn't take you seriously at all. And, and then eventually you found some people who were willing to give you a shot. And that's kind of how it all started. So d- just, just tell us in your own words, like, you know, how, how, how did that all come about? Uh, why, why as a 12 year old, did you want to go out and, and start building websites for local businesses? Like what was driving you? Yeah, I was just really curious about how things worked. Um, sort of, I was the type of kid who would get given like an old kind of appliance of some kind, like an old VCR or something, and would immediately just take it apart and try and figure out how it worked. Um, so it was a very similar thing when I found kind of the internet and computers. So immediately sort of decided that I wanted to figure out not like what were the coolest websites to visit, but actually how does one of these things get made? So that was kind of like the the self-directed kind of journey into wanting to figure out how websites are built and um, and starting to build them. And then sort of always having kind of an inkling, not necessarily for business per se, but just wanting to do something useful and rather than building a bunch of websites that were just about kind of hobbies or interests that I had, maybe kind of the businesses in the the town that I grew up in needed one and didn't have one. Um, and I could kind of plug that gap and sort of make some pocket money sort of while I did it. Um, so really that was, that was kind of the motivation. It was like, I had a, I'd, I'd learned a skill. I had a desire to put the skill to use and sort of, it was like the most, obvious sort of thing that was directly in front of me, um, which was sort of these local businesses to go and do it for them. Do you remember the first business that you built a website for? I believe it was a restaurant um, in the town that I grew up in um, called Bombay Dynasty, um, which was the local Indian restaurant um, that I it was calling it a website is probably a stretch. Um, it was more like transcribing a menu um, online and putting a phone number next to it so people could kind of call up and, and, and order for delivery. Um, but I believe that was the first one. And then you did that for, for a little while. And then eventually, I think the next thing you built was a invoicing app, right? A Mac app. Yeah. So these businesses, sort of some of them being legitimate businesses, um, actually wanted a receipt or an invoice for, for some of these websites that I was making. Um, and I kind of went home one day and I was like, I didn't even know what an invoice was. Um, so immediately Googled like, what is an invoice, how to make an invoice. Um, and I think it was like QuickBooks or zero or something kind of came up. Um, and it was like, it it was, I, I don't even know what it was. It was like 10 pounds a month. Um, or something to buy, subscribe to to QuickBooks so they could make invoices. And I was like, 10 pounds a month, that's crazy. I think you have to bear in mind, I was probably charging like 50 pounds to make someone a website. Um, I was like, 10 pounds a month, that's crazy. Um, I can build this. Um, so that started the, the transition from building websites to building software. Um, so I taught myself how to build kind of things that were slightly more robust than a, a menu that I was transcribing online and started building invoicing software initially for myself so I could send out these invoices. And then invoicing software became invoicing and time tracking. Um, and I fell in love with building a product that solved a problem. Um, and sort of that absorbed all of the free time that I had as a kid, like kind of building software rather than kind of these websites anymore. 
um, but then wasn't making that kind of pocket money anymore, sort of making the websites for the local businesses. So instead started just selling the software um, and started selling it sort of just online, kind of posting about it in forums and things like that and kind of got a few customers. And then from there kind of had, this was sort of probably like 2000. Eight, nine, sort of when I was starting to do some of this stuff through kind of 2010. So I, I think if you think back to the sort of the internet and some of the businesses that were popular at the time, it was like Groupon. It was the daily deal craze of like every every other email in your inbox was some discount for something. And I was I kind of latched onto that idea and was like, what if we created Groupon for software? And we created sort of either daily discounts or bundles of software. So if you're buying invoicing software and you're a photographer, you're probably buying some other things, some like a CRM, maybe sort of photo editing software, maybe something else and something else. Um, so started basically from the invoicing thing, packaging those up into sort of bundles of software, selling them at a discount. And that became the first real business um, sort of that was generating real revenue um, that, that I started working on. So how, how did you do that, right? Because, I mean, it wasn't just your software, right? You, you were going out and convincing other software businesses to kind of participate in these bundles. You hadn't done it before yourself. And so it's, it's kind of like, like how, how, did, how did you persuade people to say yes and take, take a, you know, a gamble on you? Yeah, it was sort of like a a perfect storm of things like one i think it was definitely right place right time in terms of deals bundles sort of the idea that um kind of you could sort of like the phenomenon of like groupon was sort of like you could create like an offer for something and you could sell 20,000 of them in 24 hours and by selling 20,000 of them, even if they were 50% off, it would provide you with this one huge injection of cash into a business very, very quickly um, for zero kind of upfront cost. And two, it would provide you with 20,000 new customers that you could go and market other products to and upsells and things like that. So recognizing that sort of, and the the beauty of kind of this being kind of 15 years ago, 18 years ago, something like that, was that sort of all of this stuff was happening over email. And over email, it was just Christian Owens, sort of there was no picture, there was no sort of anything kind of going along with that that told people I was a 14-year-old um, building this business. So providing that the things that I was saying in the email made sense and sort of I was relatively articulate with how I was writing them, sort of you couldn't tell whether I was 15 or 50. Um, so kind of you have this natural credibility that's built into kind of cold emailing kind of these businesses. And the pitch was very simple. The pitch was, we're doing the, the freelancer bundle. Um, we've got this invoicing software and this project management software and these eight other tools or seven other things. We'd like you to be involved as well. Between these seven other companies, we have a combined like email newsletter list of um, 250,000 people and each company who would be in the, the bundle um, would have to agree to email it to their kind of email list 
at least once during the promotion. So we have a combined list of 250,000 sort of people and if we're going to sell it for the retail price of all of these things is 500 bucks, we're going to sell it for 50. Um, we're going to run it for a week and sort of we're going to aim to sell sort of 5,000 copies of this and everybody will get sort of a share of the money and everybody will also get sort of two things. They'll get the list of 5,000 customers who purchased it and they'll also get the any customers who signed up to the email list to be notified about future promotions kind of on that specific promotion itself. So while we're promoting it. So you get exposure to 250,000 people for the product. You get a share of the revenue from this thing, which is probably like a, a reasonable amount of money. It's tens of thousands of dollars. And you get access to these customers, probably 5,000-ish who would buy the thing. And this was sort of pre-SaaS being as mainstream as it is today. So a lot of these products were perpetually licensed. So we're talking about sort of things like kind of Photoshop and sort of one password back in the day where you would pay 50 bucks for one password version six, and then 24 months later, version seven would come out and you'd have to pay again. So there was this huge benefit to these businesses who are on this perpetual license model to within six months of them planning to release the next major version of the software to actually get 5,000 customers because those 5,000 customers, some percentage of them would go on and then buy version six or version seven or whatever the next one was. Um, so it was sort of, there was no real downsides to this. It's not like kind of we see today in SaaS, some of these like websites um, and love the, love the company like AppSumo and kind of Noah Kagan and, and sort of people like that who do the idea of a lifetime deal. Whereas these very much weren't lifetime deals. You were buying version six of this product and version seven was going to come out and there was an opportunity for you to monetize that customer immediately. So after the first one, the first one was really successful. The first one sold, I think, 20,000, 25,000 copies, made over a million dollars in gross sales. Kind of each of the participants in that got at least, and the 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 sh revenue share that you got was relative to the price of your product. So the minimum amount of money that somebody kind of got from that was I think like $50,000. So as soon as we had this sort of initial case study, it kind of became a little bit of a race of how many of these could we do as quickly as possible. So you said there was a, a, list, a combined list of 250,000 email addresses that you could promote the, the products to. How, how big was your list at the time? Zero. <laughs> Zero. Love it. Very quickly, we amassed, um, within 18 months, I think we had 400,000 people um, subscribed to our lists. So sort of like who were specifically subscribing to the bundles to get notified of those. Um, but from, and those were just all people who came from this, this sort of collaborative cross promotion or had purchased one of the bundles. But day one, it was zero. And it was sort of just, the thing that we were bringing to the table was actually just the orchestration of all of this. Um, so we had to build a website and it had to take payments. Then we had to split the funds afterwards. In later promotions as well, we'd, we'd allocate a proportion of the sales to actually like paid advertising for these things as well. Um, but yeah, the first one, it was, it was zero. And then how many more of these did you do before you, I think you basically told your parents that you were going to quit school and, and start working on this full time, right? I told them that after the first one. 
how, how did that go down? I, ca- I can't remember what you told me, what happened when you told them that. It was kind of a conversation that was sort of a long time coming. Um, they'd kind of seen me doing this stuff sort of online. And I think they were always, they were always very supportive um, of that. I think initially when I made some of this initial money, they didn't really actually know that I was doing this in the background. Um, so kind of there was first a conversation which was, I've started this thing. It's actually been very successful, like kind of sort of breaking that news first. And then the kind of the second tranche of news was, and also, and I think I was like 15 at the time, kind of going on 16 and, and sort of, it was, I want to quit school at 16 and focus on this. And basically the, the, the arrangement was like, they weren't particularly happy about it, but they could see that this sort of initial thing had been successful. And it was sort of always the case of like, we'll let you do this. The moment that it kind of stops working um, or that sort of, it's not a job anymore like you go back to school or you continue education and you get a job or whatever. And then tell me how that business eventually led to Paddle because it wasn't Paddle created because it was, it was basically another tool that you were trying to build to support this business. Is that, I remember how things started. We were doing sort of we started once we kind of did the first one and then got into a cadence of doing these we were trying to do one a month um and then we started doing kind of daily deals on site alongside that once we had this base of 400,000 people so it was like kind of one password is about to launch the new version so they come to us and they say um look we're going to we're willing to do 50% off one password 6 um because we know in 6 months time we're going to be able to kind of sell these customers number 7 so we started doing that as well and very quickly got to the point where we were doing millions of dollars of sales, um, kind of run rated sort of on an annual basis. Like we didn't quite peak, like the individual bundles didn't quite do as well as the first one did sort of like they sort of averaged, ended up averaging doing about two or $300,000 each, but we're still very successful and kind of we were able to replicate that model. So we were doing sort of several million dollars of sales um, for this as well as sort of the invoicing product as well, which as a standalone was was growing and, and doing pretty well. So we're doing millions of dollars in sales from hundreds of thousands of people all around the world. And sort of this is kind of, you have to remember this is this is pre-Stripe, this is pre-Adyen, it's pre-Braintree, it's pre any of these sort of like today, how we think about kind of just doing any type of transaction online. It's pre any of these technologies existing. So we were doing 100% of this volume through PayPal um some countries didn't support paypal so we had to sign up with like a local like merchant acquirer like how do you set like all the forms you have to fill in to accept a credit card online and that that was hard enough just the payments piece um but then we started wanting to do subscriptions so we wanted to launch a kind of like an amazon prime style subscription where if you were a, a member of this sort of subscription membership you'd get additional discounts and exclusive deals and things like that and that was really hard. We found that taking a subscription payment was really difficult. And we started to see a lot of these SaaS products transition to subscriptions. And then we started getting hit with fraud and chargebacks and things like that. Um, just people trying to steal the software um, by stealing credit cards and things like that. And then all of this complexity of selling in all of these different countries in relation to, we had to pay tax in all of these countries, like sales tax, VAT and and, and sales tax. Um and it was sort of at that point in kind of, I was enjoying running this business. And, but at that point, I 
was just so frustrated with the amount of time that we were spending on how do we calculate and file and, and pay taxes? How do we accept payments? How do we deal with this fraud problem? How do we be compliant with all of these different things? How do we take subscription payments? How do we make sure our invoices are compliant in France where you need to include extra information on them or the right exchange rate or whatever it is? That I kind of emailed the majority of the people that we'd ever worked with in these promotions, sort of asking them how they solved these problems in their companies. Um, like what tools did they use? And I was really just in search of, can I buy a thing, implement it? It works in the background. It deals with all this stuff for me. And that didn't exist. I got a set of responses back, which were basically, oh, we use 10 different things. We have the same set of problems that you do. Yeah, we get hit by fraud too. Oh, we have sort of three accountants across two three different countries who help us with these local sales tax things which wasn't really the answer that I was looking for. I was just looking for, oh yeah, go buy this thing, kind of implement it, it works. Because it seemed crazy to me that basically of these 30 people that I emailed or however many it was, we were all trying to solve the same problem as each other. Like we all had exactly the same pain point. These were low price, high volume software products being sold entirely internationally, like kind of borders didn't really exist. And we were all running into the exact same problems. Um, so it was at that point I was 17 and decided that sort of that was going to be the next business that, that I started really not knowing exactly how I was going to solve the problem. Cause I still had the problem myself. Um, but knowing that sort of that problem set was the thing that I was going to go and solve. So sort of hired somebody to run that business, um, moved to London met my co-founder of paddle Harrison, who I'd been working with um, on the previous business as well. He was doing some, some organizing these partnerships with with these companies, and we moved to London, rented a a, a house together, um, and basically just started building Paddle. Um, so it was really just like the the experiences of of trying to run that at scale, um, and then talking to dozens of of people who were having the same problem that that decided to to try and do something about it with Paddle. Did you do any other kind of validation of of the problem or just based on your personal experience and then emailing these partners and hearing back this consistent um, feedback what, that was enough for you to feel like there's there's enough here, the problem is significant enough to to invest your your time and money going forward? yeah, that was that was pretty much enough. I kind of I kind of figured it as. We'd built really good relationships with 20, 30, 40 software companies at this point. We'd made them significant amounts of money um, and sort of we got them substantial numbers of new customers that if we built a reason, and they were all complaining about this being a problem, that if we built a reasonable solution to this problem, then at least a proportion of them would use it or give it a try. Um, and I was really building kind of based on my own experiences. So I kind of had a pretty solid idea of what it needed to do. So that was the extent to the, the, those emails and talking to some people was the extent of the validation that I did just on the basis of like, I had the problem. I'd kind of like fully been engulfed in it for the, the past, the kind of two and a half years before. Tell me about what, what goes through your mind when you, you kind of have these ideas for a business you know, lots of, lots of teenagers build websites. They then don't go out and start, you know, walking into local businesses and trying to sell their services or 
you know, at 14, reaching out to companies and trying to basically do these JV type deals. So there's, there's obviously, there's something about the way you think and approach problems that it, that, that kind of lets you move and start running with these ideas quickly. So what is it? Is it just, you just, is it just the curiosity when you have something there and you're like, okay, I just want to go out there and see what it is or do you just feel like you have a you know very high sense of confidence about yourself and your ability to go and do these things? So what is it? Because there's there's something about you with all of these examples that we've talked about that you come up with an idea and you just sort of you sort of just start to run with it. And a lot of other people might never do anything, or they might be like, wow, that paddle idea, yeah, would love to solve that, but it feels so massive and it's such a pain and I wouldn't even know where to start. So just, yeah, give, give, what goes, when you think about these, these business opportunities, what, what do you think is the difference with you that makes you start running with the idea? I think that I kind of see these sort of business problems as just any other problem. And it's sort of like, if you think about the, if you think about the, um, um, I'm sort of, I'm getting old enough that I can say the word career now, which is interesting. But like, if you think about the kind of the journey of my career, it's been experiment with something, have an issue with it, try and solve the issue. So it was build websites for people. Someone asks for an invoice, don't know how to make an invoice, create a thing to help me make invoices. Like want to sell invoicing software instead of building uh, a website for people. Oh, what's the thing that I don't have? I don't have customers. Who has customers? Other software companies. Can we partner with them to get their customers? Like building that business, it's commerce is really difficult. Okay, commerce is really difficult. What's the solution? I don't know, but there is a solution. I'm I'm dealing with it today. Other people must have this problem. I'm gonna go and try and solve gonna go and try and build the product I wish I had when I was building that company. So does that does that very much sort of like each subsequent thing is linked to the previous thing in terms of just general experiences, kind of which I think has served me well. I think the second thing is I'm just deeply at the end of the day, like I'm the people laugh at me like for I'm just the biggest pragmatist. I am like, what is the most pragmatic solution to the problem that is immediately in front of us that we can go and implement? And like I get excited about dreaming about kind of the vision of the thing that we could create as well. But I don't I think the the thing that a lot of people do is they get so fixated on how the world will look if everything that they are telling themselves that they need to believe in order to do this, they get so fixated on the end outcome that they forget to start. And I think that I get so excited about the end outcome that I can't wait to start. I'm like, oh, if we did. And I think it's probably because every subsequent thing has led to the next thing for me that I kind of realize that sort of these things are incremental um, and they ultimately compound. Um, sort of like the business I run today, uh, is sort of kind of orders of magnitude greater than the business that I ran to begin with, which was building websites for people. So it's, I think it's sort of just being unafraid to kind of just chip away at a problem. Like the first version of Haddle wasn't particularly pretty. Um, and to be quite honest, like there was a part of my brain, which was like, not even just every software company, every company in the world will use this one day. 
but that wasn't, I, I didn't expect that to happen day one. I was just excited that if I could, those 20 people that I emailed, if 10 of them decided they were going to give it a shot. So it was sort of, there was a deep kind of like pragmatism in each of these things. And I also think kind of, even though we're, this business is venture backed and we've raised $300 million from day one, there was a sense of this thing has to be a real business. Like from day one, Paddle made money. Like when we signed the, the first customer who started using it and they started transacting through it, it made money. From day one, the bundle business made money. From day one, the invoicing software company made money. Um, so it was, I think, kind of the other flip side to the, 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 the thing I was saying earlier is I think that sometimes people get so fixated with the end goal that they forget that the first thing that they create, the first iteration of it also has to be a business. And you see like all of these companies who go for kind of distribution and kind of huge scale and they'll figure out how they monetize it later. And maybe in the current market that we're in, that's changed a little bit. But I think my approach was always the opposite. It was always, it can't just be like the minimum viable kind of version of the idea, but it has to be the minimum viable version of the idea that we can monetize because it's only with creating something that is monetizable, that generates revenue that we can take that revenue and reinvest it into creating something greater and that itself will compound. So I think that's just sort of the framework, if you can call it that, um, that, that has always sort of been the thing that I have used to sort of decide what the next thing to do was. Now, the interesting thing with, with Paddle is that you were super excited about building this product, solving, solving these problems. And when you, how long did it take for you and Harrison to build and, and ship the first version of Paddle? From initial idea of moving to London, sort of incorporating probably six months. And then the excitement, what happened to that level of excitement when you, when you shipped the product and then realized that people didn't seem to be as interested in it as you thought they were going to be? Well, I think that the story there was really one of, of kind of our hypothesis was correct um, in the initial version of Paddle. People wanted a better way and an easy way, easier way to sell software and run a software company. I think that I was leaning a little bit too heavily on kind of the experiences of the previous business in thinking that actually the best way to do that was to build a marketplace for software, which is what that that first after six months version of paddle was rather than just the infrastructure to power kind of the selling of software and it was really kind of it was get six months in launch the marketplace with a handful of these businesses that we'd worked with on the previous one um as well in the marketplace the realization that a marketplace really needs two sides in order to function but actually the commerce engine that we built behind the scenes to power this marketplace was really what people wanted they wanted the guts of a marketplace. They wanted all the, the checkout, the payments, the recurring billing, the invoicing. And obviously telling the story now and, and kind of the preamble to this, that seems really obvious. Like you had a problem with billing and invoicing and payments. Sort of why didn't you just build a solution for billing and invoicing and payments? Well, I think you sort of, I think you have to place yourself back in, in 2011, 2012, kind of again, pre-Stripe, pre-any of these things what was sort of what was the nicest experience that somebody had buying or selling something a piece of software online it was the app store it was the app store and itunes and kind of 
kind of audible and, and sort of things like that. So really that was what we were trying to emulate, but for a ro- more robust type of purchase, a, a larger purchase than the, the 99 cent in-app purchase that you were going to do. And then it was sort of, it was only kind of through that iteration that we then realized that sort of actually trying to build a marketplace was probably silly. And what these businesses wanted was, was the guts of one, the, the underlying infrastructure that powered it and all of the kind of ancillary services um, that those marketplaces are doing for you. And that's really what Paddle became within the, the following six months. And it's really what we are today, um, obviously at a bigger scale with more products and more functionality, but but really it's it's sort of the underlying infrastructure of, of how you power a subscription marketplace. Um, and we're, we're, we're giving that to companies so that they can use it to power their own businesses. So in in the last interview, we we talked uh, in more, more detail about how you grew the business to around 10 million ARR uh, over a period of about, I think, six, six or seven years. And I don't think we necessarily need to repeat that again. We can provide a link for people to go back and, and listen to those details on the previous episode. But let's talk about the last few years and, and sort of effectively the business going from 10 million ARR to, you know, as you said, getting close to uh, 100 million. That's, there's a lot of been going on. And, and I think what I maybe want to just talk about first is, as, as, as you and I were talking earlier, part of this growth has come from you and the business being able to move up market and, and start to reach bigger and different types of customers. But even that wasn't a straightforward change to the business. And, and you had a false start and some, some failures along the way. And I think there's some good lessons there that, that we, we should share. So maybe uh, let, let's start with that. Like when, at what point did you decide that, look, we need to move up market? And what did you do to start making that transition for the business? So I think it's, it's probably worth the context that for the first uh, five years of the business, four or five years of the business, we never really thought that we would. Um, we never thought we would be able to make that transition. The assumption that we had was, at some scale, and obviously the, the upper bound of that scale has changed over time. At some scale, this problem becomes one that you want to solve internally. And sort of seven years ago, kind of us was definitely sitting there and saying a business doing $200 million a year, which was an unfathomable kind of scale, what is obviously going to build teams and do this stuff themselves. And then you actually talk to one of those businesses and they're like, hell no, I don't want to build that infrastructure myself. That's super complicated. And sort of, I have to do it across how many countries? And you realize that actually every business of every scale has so many things that they would rather be focusing on than back office infrastructure. So it's probably worth starting with, I think we were coming from a mental starting point of we didn't think that we would be able to do this um, or that it just wasn't even a feasible, viable option for us as a business. We were essentially kind of dragged up market. If you think about, the way kind of our business works is sort of in the early days we were signing kind of these these startups and they were doing maybe twenty thirty thousand dollars a month in sales um, and they were growing very nicely and and doing very well and and over the years sort of you realize why investors love to invest in SaaS companies and it's because some of those businesses that are doing twenty thousand dollars a month. A couple of years later, we're doing $200,000 a month. And a couple of years later, we're doing $2 million a month and so on and so on. 
So sort of naturally, like the largest customer that we ever signed in the first couple of years was probably no greater than doing kind of $100,000 a month in, in kind of sales themselves. But fast forward three, four, five years, and suddenly those were 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar businesses kind of still running on paddle. So kind of the, the largest customer that we'd ever sold to was maybe doing a million bucks, but the largest customer we had was doing 50 million. So you can understand how that maybe leads you into a false sense of security that you're ready to go and sell to a customer that's doing $50 million in sales. And then you realize that you've never actually built a sales process or a, a, a product onboarding process or kind of maybe some of the functionality that a $50 million business sort of looking to scale to $100 million might expect from this product. So kind of that sort of probably three, four years ago led us into this false sense of security that we were ready. We already had customers that were doing this much revenue. We were ready to go and like make that the primary source of new business. So we went, we hired some really incredible salespeople um, sort of who were used to doing these upmarket deals. And we started, we pointed them in the direction of like, here's a bunch of logos that we want you to go and win. And here's the value prop and and kind of go for it. And then very quickly realized that sort of these businesses sort of, it's one thing getting the three person business who's doing $50,000 a month to go and say, we have $50,000 going in this direction and it needs to go in this direction. We're going to point it at a paddle. It's a very different thing to get sort of a 400 person organization that's doing 50 or $100 million in sales to suddenly uproot all of this back office infrastructure and point it in our direction. And we didn't have sort of the, the sales process. We didn't have the way to demonstrate to them the ROI of doing this, even though we knew once they were on paddle, they would grow faster and they would run the business better. We didn't necessarily have the ability to articulate to them that actually the work required to do the transition was going to be worth it. And then equally, we didn't have some of the, the functionality that they needed, things like sort of even things such as sort of like two-factor authentication uh, in the dashboard when you log in. You suddenly realize that if you're selling to any business that's doing more than 20 or $30 million in sales and who has hundreds of employees, suddenly they, they care about security. They care about kind of like password management and sort of how like the rules around that things are set or the enterprise functionality around export and audit and things like that that they need. So we didn't have any of that. So we'd hired these, these sales reps and sort of probably after about six to nine months, they all quit. Um, this sort of very senior, very expensive set of kind of strategic account executives and BDRs and people that we'd hired all left. And you very quickly kind of come to the realization that the best possible salespeople want to work for the easiest, the, the products that are easiest to sell. Well, not necessarily the easiest to sell, but the ones that have really great ROI, have really articulate, the ones that you can really easily articulate kind of the immediate value proposition, the immediate return on investment a customer is going to make. And we just sort of, it's not that we didn't have those things fundamentally. It's not that sort of for the 50 or the $100 million business, buying Paddle was a bad decision. Actually, it's a really, really good decision. And you you make more and you save more sort of by doing so. It's just, we hadn't built any of the infrastructure in order to be able to articulate that to a customer so we couldn't equip any of these sales reps with, with the ammunition that they needed to go and have those conversations and learn the hard way that sort of like the easiest way for, to um, lose a great sales rep is when they can't sell anything and they can't hit their number and they can't make commission and they can't kind of do all these things. 
so that was sort of a bit of a wake up call for us sort of two, three years ago and realizing that actually, even though our largest customer was doing 50 or a hundred million dollars, um, in volume through us, like we didn't have the sophistication to sell to a customer that was as large as the largest customer that we already had. So then it became just incrementally, how do we understand each of these segments? How do we understand how these businesses change as they grow? Um, what their requirements are. So investing in product, doing more research, um, building collateral, sort of building the functions around sort of sales and sales enablement in order to enable us to do that. Unfortunately, today we're in a position where we're now able to go and sign sort of those those large enterprise deals. Sort of like just this year, we've we've signed Verizon with their Blue Jeans product. We've signed Fortinet, which is a big public um, security software company. We signed ServiceNow. So sort of these huge companies are now kind of going with Paddle. And it's because we've just been able to actually articulate the value that was always there, that we just didn't have the actual capability to, uh, to tell these customers about previously. So I'm uh, a little confused about that because it sounded like d- that you were doing that the first time around as well. So you're building a, a sales org. You, you talked about, you know, we're equipping them with the value prop and all of these things to, to go out and sell, but it, it, it didn't work. It was a struggle for them to sell. So the second time round, like how was that different? I think the first time around we were building the value prop that the million dollar custom, the million dollar a year business bought from even though now they were a $50 million business, but when we won them, they were a million. We were using the same rationale and the same arguments and the same sort of things that we thought were important to them. And then pointing at all these businesses and being like, yeah, but look, this business that's also the same size as you use as Paddle. Um, and they chose us for these reasons and not really kind of necessarily being like, they chose us for those reasons when they were doing a million dollars a year. If you ask them the reasons that they continue to use Paddle, like it's a whole different set of reasons Um, And we hadn't built any of the cases around those whole different set of reasons. So the second time around, we were much more educated about the actual buyer who was going to be buying Paddle today. And we were educating them on the reasons that the the, the $50 million company uses Paddle as a $50 million company. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. You also, um, you mentioned earlier that you'd raised close to $300 million. Your last was round was like a series D. Was that? Was that the round, was that during COVID you raised that money? Yeah. So we've raised two rounds since, since I think the last time we spoke. Um, so we raised about a 60-ish million dollar round during COVID. Um, and then we raised a $200 million round about three or four months ago. Um, but that $60 million round during COVID was, was sort of an interesting one because we were, we were in some respects sort of in, well, in retrospect, looking back on it, we were a net beneficiary of COVID um, because so many businesses around the world and so many software companies grew so quickly. So they had a need for both the infrastructure that we provide and helping them kind of scale and grow and, and manage commerce, but then also the the hundreds of businesses or thousands of businesses that were using Paddle at the time also themselves saw some significant growth. If they were building video conferencing software, suddenly their business tripled overnight. So we were net beneficiaries of, of COVID, but at the time that we were doing that, that fundraising, it was, um, we were probably raising it in April, May, 2020. So if you think kind of lockdowns and things started to happen in, in March, 
we were six to eight weeks in the, um, the kind of economies were starting to shut down. Nobody really knew what was going to happen. Everybody kind of thought they were going to die. Like kind of, they certainly thought they were going to be financially ruined. So sort of really us sort of at that point, we were, we were kind of like in, in, in retrospect, we probably would have been fine had we not raised that money, given how quickly the business grew because we were net beneficiaries of COVID. Um, but we were sort of sat there at the time, as with every other business, kind of looking in, looking at the world around us and sort of watching. And I think everybody had the feeling of like, is this is like the end of the world? Like what, what is happening here? And sort of we made a decision to raise, uh, I think, $68 million in in kind of the depths of COVID, probably at a much lower valuation um, than knowing how the market then performed afterwards 12 months later that we would have been able to raise at. So it was an interesting kind of decision-making process where at the time it felt like we were the luckiest people in the world to be in the privileged position to have a business that was performing well during COVID and we were able to raise capital. And then 12 months later, you're like, wow, that was probably a 50% discount on the valuation that we would have got with the same metrics that we had then, but now. And it's kind of a similar story with the round that we've we've just raised, um, but kind of the inverse of we closed a $200, $210 million um, kind of Series D in April uh, of this year. Um, and actually April of this year, if you think about the time at which sort of we were raising money, it was sort of January through April, kind of the peak of like the tech market was December. So January through April, that whole period of time that we were raising money, the, the market is going sharply downwards. And I think if we hadn't closed that round when we did in, 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 so we closed it roughly in, in March and announced it in April, sort of, if we had closed that round four months prior our, and we announced the, the valuation. It was at a $1.4 billion valuation that we raised that money. If we'd raised that money four months prior, our valuation probably would have been $3 billion. But if we'd raised, the, and, and we would be in a position now where the market is very much corrected and we would be spending the next several years trying to grow into a $3 billion valuation. Had we raised that money two months late, two months later, we probably never would have closed it because the uh, the whole market went went kind of completely down and and sort of fundraising dried up. So it's sort of like it's one of these things where I think kind of it's sort of like it's definitely one of those like a bird in the hand things, but it's also sort of like a reminder that I think like we spend all of our time as SaaS company founders or executives almost trying to predict the future a little bit. And sort of, we often forget that really 99% of our job outside of predicting the future and kind of pontificating about these visions that we have in the future, 99% of our job is analyzing the data that we have immediately in front of us and just being able to make a decision using that and not being paralyzed by those sort of kind of data points and decisions. Um, and I think that like, we managed to build a $1.4 billion company. We managed to do a really great acquisition earlier this year and in, in buying um, ProfitWell. And sort of really it's because sort of every stage, we just evaluated exactly where we were at and did the right thing for the business in our shoes at that point in time, rather than trying to make all of these bold predictions about what was going to happen. Because if in January of this year, when there was a little bit of a blip of the market, 
we were to say, nope, we'll pause this. Like last time that we did a fundraise, if we'd waited 12 months, we would have got double the valuation. Well, if we'd taken that same approach and tried to predict the future in January of this year, we wouldn't have raised money at all. I spoke to Patrick a few weeks ago and kind of got his perspective on, on you know, the, the acquisition. But from, from your side, at what point did you, did you decide that you wanted to acquire ProfitWell and, and what was the, the main driver for that? The what point did you decide is an interesting question because I probably decided standalone in my head maybe two years ago that I thought it was a good idea. Um, at what point did I have a discussion with Patrick and then kind of come to an actual decision? Um, it was sort of November of, of last year um, and we'd been talking for sort of a few weeks about it. Really, the, the that came together because the, the missions of these two companies were so similar. They were so similar, but the products that we were creating were so had so little overlap. So they were so heavily complementary to each other. And the missions being similar was both of our mission was essentially to help run and grow SaaS and subscription companies automatically. And sort of we'd taken one approach to that, which was how do we build this core underlying operations, operating infrastructure to help with payments, recurring billing taxes, all of the stuff that you don't want to deal with. And their approach had been how do we actually sit on top of systems that you use to do those things to give you insights, metrics, benchmarking, help with retention, pricing, kind of all of these things? How do we build tools that augment those systems and help you be more effective? So it was really a combination of these two missions. These companies were basically identical, slightly different approaches or slightly different um, kind of levels of altitude to how that we were approaching the same set of problems. And then this natural kind of feeling that, okay, sort of if we join forces on this, we'd be able to create, create something that's sort of like truly greater than the sum of its parts. So that, that was the rationale and kind of Patrick and I had known each other for a couple of years before. Um, so sort of we'd probably actually about four or five years before um, we'd met through conferences and, and things like that. So we had a pretty good relationship with each other anyway. And, and sort of we we the more we started talking about things like how these two businesses should work together in terms of a partnership or a, a co-marketing or whatever the more we realized we were just trying to achieve the same things and why spend sort of kind of double the brain power trying to kind of do it at two slightly different levels where we could actually just join forces and, and create something that's 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 much greater as a whole yeah it's certainly interesting to see you know where you guys take that and and kind of combined forces what what this new business and, and and product looks like one thing i do want to ask you before we get onto the, the lightning round is you know whenever you, you from the conversations that you and i have had today a few years ago you know you've always struck me as as very much a product guy like you love finding these problems and rolling up your sleeves and building solutions and now it kind of strikes me that you're in a very different place now where the company is, is you know, basically you know, a billion dollar company, hundreds of employees. Uh, I know you've been hiring, but aside from the, the ProfitWell acquisition and Patrick coming on as you know, chief strategy officer, you've been, you've been hiring senior people around you. How has how has that affected your like? Are you are you comfortable in that new role? Do you still love to noodle with products? Do you still find time to 
to, you know, set aside where you can, you know, whether it's in your spare time or weekends to do that? How do you spend your time these days and, and how much are you involved in the product? It's certainly a very different gig, even to the last time that we spoke um, in terms of just like the scale of things and, and sort of it's running a 400 person sort of company is different to running a hundred person company and, and sort of, I'm sure running a thousand person company will different again. For me, I just like learning. I'm like, from the very beginning, I like learning. I like being curious and I like kind of building things, whether it's directly building them or, or, or sort of just being involved in building them. I try and spend as much time as I can, um, on product, um, especially some of the, the, the future bigger bets, um, sort of like what are the, the swings, um, that we're going to make that may be sort of riskier than kind of the functionality or the roadmap that we know that we should build, um, and that we are building. So I tend to spend some of my time on that. I kind of see all of these things. I, w- I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today about, about finance and sort of, and if they were like, oh, this person, it was about kind of our org and they were like, oh, this person sort of, they can engage with that stuff, but they, they don't really enjoy it. Um, like spreadsheets and getting right in the details and things like that. And for me, it was, it was like, oh no, I actually kind of really enjoy that because I kind of see almost every problem as another product problem or another engineering problem, more engineering problem. But for me, it's something like finance and figuring out kind of how we do a plan for next year or kind of whatever it is sort of, and and digging into the details of that and the assumptions that we're going to make and kind of, um, and sort of how these things work. It's just another problem to go and solve. And fundamentally, I think I am motivated and interested in kind of seeing a problem and then going and try and fix it. I think kind of actually sort of playing therapist with myself, uh, kind of in real time. That's probably, that's basically what I've done for the last 10 plus years of building kind of each of, or 15 plus years of building each of these companies. So sort of, I think if you look at it on a micro level in terms of basically all you're doing is you're solving different problems at a bigger scale. Um, and I still get to do that, um, every day. So I still enjoy that. I mean, the, as much as like kind of enjoy those things, there are obviously things that I don't enjoy. And obviously there are problems and there are things that go wrong and at scale, each of those things is amplified. Um, but you also have the benefit of being able to do it with kind of, uh, like you mentioned, surrounded by a team of really experienced people who I've been able to kind of accrue and build over time as well. So it's, it's kind of like there are ups and downs to this. There are, there are things that are wildly more interesting and things that are wildly less interesting, but kind of, there are kind of counters to each of those points. Still enjoy it. It's a different job. Um, spend as much time as I can on product, but usually kind of more further out product. Whereas, whereas previously I was probably thinking about what we were going to ship next week. Now I'm trying to think more about what are we going to ship sort of a year or two from now? And what do we start need to start working on today in order to make those things more of a reality? Yeah, I'm with you. I think that um, if if you if you have a if you have a if you're naturally curious and you have this desire to learn, there's always opportunities to do something exciting or something interesting every day. And and some of the the smartest people that that I've ever worked with are just are just super curious people, and they just either make you think differently or ask questions in a way that um exactly the way you said is just like 
you, you ra- rather than seeing problems as problems, you see problems as interesting opportunities, right? And and that that I think is uh, a really 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 kind of a positive way to look at look at things. Um, and it's obviously working for you. <laughs> All right, uh, let's get on to the lightning round. We've done we've done this before. Uh, so I'm going to ask you seven quick fire questions. Ready? Yep. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Go slow to go fast. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? I think I gave this answer last time, but it's the hard thing about hard things. Um, and the reason why it's sort of like, it's one of those books that doesn't gloss over um, the, just like the mess that is sometimes creating a company. Um, and I really like it just for its honesty in, in that regard. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Ability to listen more than you speak. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? I like to write everything down and make lots of notes. Um, so it's an app called Bear. I love Bear. Great app. <laughs> uh, what's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? There are a handful of people who are building kind of these interesting um, sort of they're sort of like rolling up small profitable SaaS businesses. Um, they're creating like these micro private equity firms um, where they're going and buying very small products that solve really discrete problems. So it might be kind of scheduling for hairdressers who are kind of remote freelancers. And it will be a little business that does 5,000 bucks a month um, and generates tons of profit. And they're kind of rolling these things up. And I think that would be an absolutely fascinating way to kind of just like learn and and build a, a big kind of holding company private equity thing. So I think that would be super interesting. Yeah, that's a super interesting space. And I think one of the things that even now, after having done this and spoken to, God, hundreds of thousands of, of founders is that it's like people just keep telling me about business ideas and I'm, I like never even imagined, you know, these markets existed, right? It's just super fascinating how deep and how, how you know, you, you can go into these, these kind of micro opportunities. What's, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? I think most people know it at this point, but I've never had a job. This is the only job I've ever had. Um, so I've never seen good culture, good leadership, good management. I've never seen good, bad leadership, bad management, bad culture, other than, other than in the company that I've built. So one day I'll join a different one and I'll find out if I was doing it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? I am in the process of buying a house in the countryside. It's in a big, it's basically in a, the middle of nowhere. Um, and I am very excited um, about, it's also sort of very unloved and hasn't been lived in for many years. Um, so I'm very excited about turning it into something great. So yeah, it's sort of, I like, it's apparently it's building stuff that isn't, <laughs> isn't made of, of, bits and is instead made of atoms um so kind of <laughs> continuing to probably solve problems and have lots of stress and headaches but just in a slightly different medium that sounds fun my um you know my wife and i moved uh from from england i guess it's been like 16 or 17 years now to the seattle area and for the, for the last four or five years we've been watching uh, uh people here won't know the show but i'm sure you will like escape to the country but it's basically like house hunters or they have here on, on TV, but, it, but people, you know, basically buying homes in the countryside in England and living in the middle of nowhere. 
And we, we kind of often talk about that. It's like if we ever went back to England, we'd probably want to do something like that. So although although I think we wouldn't we wouldn't take on a project like it sounds like you were doing. It sounds like there's there's a lot more uh, work involved there too. Yeah, I have to figure out my DIY skills um, and if they are any good. Uh, so we will, I'll, I'll keep you up. Maybe that's one for the next episode. We can, we can, we can figure out in three, maybe in three, in three years time, if it was all a, a giant failure or not. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do that. All right. Awesome. Um, so if people want to find out more about Paddle, they can go to paddle.com. Uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Where you hang out? The best place is Twitter. I spend far too much time on Twitter. So I'm just Christian B. Owens um, on Twitter. Um, or you can email me. I'm just Christian at paddle.com. Christian, thank you so much. It's been it's been a real pleasure. Um, I had a lot of fun talking last time. Uh, it's great to do an updated uh, episode here and, and kind of share the story. Congratulations on, on you know, continuing to, to grow this business. Uh, also, I appreciate you, you know, being willing to talk about some of the the challenges and and the the difficulties along the way. Because I think, you know, as as the business gets bigger, some of those things, you know, not kind of um, you 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 know, you have a lot more lot more to deal with. And and so being able to go back and talk about some of the details and the struggles, I think, is is always helpful, especially for people, other founders who are at sort of an earlier stage than you. So. Thank you for doing that and, um, you know, wish you and the team the best of success and uh, good luck with the house in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. And it's been great. I've really enjoyed myself. Awesome. Cheers.